Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Charles Morgan, who is the CEO and chairman of First Orion. He is a visionary, former chairman and CEO of Axiom Corporation, which is a world leader in data gathering and technology. He grew this company from 25 people to over 7,000 employees globally with revenue over $1.5 billion. And he's an alum of the University of Arkansas. His latest venture is called First Orion, although you started that 13 years ago, so it's really not new. (laughs) I first met Charles at the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame when he was inducted in 2004. He has uh, really been a leader in what people call big data, data science, predictive analytics, things like that. They don't use a lot of buzzwords, um, but uh, that's what you would think of this. You you really were in the big data business before it was popular. It was certainly big data before you called it big data, Matt. We just said, we we got so much data, it's taken over 100 reels of bank tape. (laughs) That's what we call big data, anything over 100 reels. And I think we had some files literally on 16-hour BPI tape. There were like 500 reels. I know it's hard to imagine. To yeah. pass the data on a database, you got to pass 500 reels of tape. And uh, that's crazy. You, you'd, have, you'd have tape drive running as fast as go, and, and then as soon as it finished, you'd start reading from another drive, then you reload the first one, and it would just keep going. And uh, so, yeah, we we got into Lots of data very early. So, And I would like to encourage the listeners to, if you Google Arkansas Business Hall of Fame, Charles Morgan, you'll see a video that we have on our website uh, about him and his life. I think it's just about five to seven minutes long, but really good uh, background. I, I would encourage you to uh, watch that. Charles, I know you grew up in Fort Smith, I believe. Right. And you came to the University of Arkansas, majored in mechanical engineering. Yep. And I believe you you started in at IBM. Is that right? IBM. I was at IBM for about five and a half years, and then joined what was the predecessor to Axiom. That's where I was until I retired. But it didn't take. Now, oh yeah, obviously, it it, it didn't take. Am I going to have to explain my jokes to you? (laughs) It it very clearly did not take. Thirteen years ago, you uh, you started First Orion. Why don't we start with First Orion? You had so much experience already. I mean, you had been with founder and CEO and chairman of Axiom for thirty six years, and then you started a new company. That's a little unusual. What inspired you to do that? It was, I, I think, part of it. If you know my. My second book I've written is 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 called Now What, and part of Now What was I was scared to death to get bored, not having enough to do. So I was already doing investments, and I had a, a number of other projects. 
at that time, I was still very active in car racing. So I was doing, you know, we had a race team, two-car race team, and I was actually going to a lot of races then. And, and we were doing engineering on, on these cars. And when I first invested in First Orion, it was because it looked like very fascinating. And the thing that uh, uh, fascinated me about it, I had watched computers go from, you know, big, big mainframes. And, and then we had, you know, desktop laptops and, you know, servers. And I watched all the different iterations of growth and how computers had changed the world entirely. Everything, everything about the world had changed. And when I saw smartphones for the first time, I said, these things are going to have more power than the first computers I worked with. And eventually they're going to, and I probably had no idea even then, and that was 13 years ago, realized we, we didn't have smartphones. What did you have? It was about the time BlackBerry showed up, right? And so uh, BlackBerry had apps on it, but it wasn't, people didn't realize it as a game changer. It was, of course, I always say BlackBerry snatched the feet out of Jaws of Victory, but that's another story. <laughs> and, you know, early on, we started developing apps on BlackBerry. But to, back to the original question, I just said, this is going to be a fascinating field to get involved in. And the original idea was to interconnect Blackberries, not just do apps on Blackberries, but connect the device to the network so they could leverage some additional network capability. And originally, we wanted to block calls in the network with Fireline. That turned out to be impossible, but we figured out how to do it with an app on the phone. And you know, now we're back fully in the network, like at T-Mobile, we have. 80, 80 servers inside of T-Mobile right now. Plus, we have a couple of thousand servers running in Amazon. So we've got huge footprints for day-to-day analytics and processing. But I was fascinated with First Orion because it just looked like this is going to change the world again. I didn't actually join First Orion full-time until 2013. It was run by Jeff Stallmaker and some others, but I... I was involved, but I wasn't involved daily. But in 2013, I decided to come back and be CEO. So, Charles, I know uh, First Orion, right now, the focus is on phone transparency and data. But did you start with that idea? We started with the idea of doing call blocking and helping people and we had early on, we had our, our motto was make people love their phones again so they don't get unwanted calls. And that was really the before the days of scam calls. There were no scam calls back 13 years ago, but there were unwanted calls. And that was our first idea. Interesting that our first big market, guess what? I hate to say it was debt collectors who were just pounding people in the ground. And we gave people a way to block debt collectors. So that was our kind of our first market. And, and we, we got lucky that uh, Metro PCS wanted to use, make our app. At that time, we were app-based. And we moved to Android, make our app uh, part of their standard offering. 
we offered that uh, app for a dollar a month, and we split the revenue with Metro PCS. So I know the tagline for First Orion is transparency yes. and communication. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about what that spans both currently and sort of your vision for the future. Well, the thing right now that it expands, it is uh, transparency is if it's a scam call, we want you to know it or be able to block it. And so that is a transparency in a call. I get a call coming in and it says scam likely or whatever, then I'm probably not going to answer Right. But if the call that, that comes in says something like, I just did this this morning, or I wasn't for you, but I don't know if we can see that or not. It says, of course, we're only going to use the audio, but let me read it. Yeah. It says, first Ryan customer service. That is actually a 32 character display. And if, if that 32 character display is shown as a verified caller, so you know that's who's calling, and you have a relationship with First Orion, there's a real good chance you're going to answer that call. If it says 1-800-da-da-da-da-da, you're almost assuredly not going to answer that call, even if you have a relationship with First Orion or not, because you may or may not have that number in your phone. So enhanced displays, verified displays, scam likely, and our goal is to have every mobile handset, every single mobile handset in the country connected. And we are, uh, we have now about 105 billion T-Mobile and former Sprint handsets that can do this. That's live. What you just saw is real. Actually, we've expended the number of characters we display as of this week, which helps it give more complete information. But we also have a capability called Engage, uh, which lets us actually put a full screen display on. It will have an extended message, logos, pictures, all other kind of stuff. And that is the precursor for a, a revolutionary technology that's going to actually be standard around, uh, at least in the United States, called RCD, Rich Display of Data bunch of stuff you can put on it so it could actually link to a website or a bunch of other stuff so all these technologies are coming down the road and the idea is if we can secure all this with a technology called stir shaken which again i'm not trying to you know bury everybody in acronyms here but stir shaken says we know who initiated that call and we can verify that if it says it's this person, that whoever initiated that call, if it was initiated by Verizon into the T-Mobile network, we know that Verizon holds her hand up and says, I know that ABC Financial did generate this call and it was not spoofed. There's a lot of underlying technology that's all converging to make the calling environment secure. And we are well down the path to becoming uh, what we'll call the central exchange for all this branded calling. That's our goal right now. And I, I jokingly say to people, this company is going to be way bigger than Axiom, even though we only have 300 employees right now. But 
I'm convinced there'll be a bigger company than Axiom. Great entrepreneurs solve problems that persist across large groups. And this yeah. is clearly a problem. You all spotted it early. Yeah. People talk about it like they talk about the weather almost. Yeah, exactly. You never go to a party and somebody says, I've got an IRS camera. I got this. Or, you know, I know a friend who just paid $500 for da 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 da. It was a scam. You know, it just happens all the time. So I would imagine, Charles, this type of technology requires a huge amount of R&D. Yes, it does. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what I love. As you can well imagine, I'm the chief technology officer for this company, really. And, you know, I meet with all our tech teams and I'm involved in, I'm the one who, you know, generally writes the white papers and says, kind of here, map out the, you know, the plan. and. I'm working on a second white paper for this year, actually. It's kind of mapping out our organizational strategy to take on the massive growth that we're about to undertake. I like to grow things, and I like to grow people. I, I want to come back to that. That's a really interesting topic. But before we do, I'm really impressed with how involved you are in everything. But also, you write the white papers. You You've also written books. Yeah, just so you're clear, I'm a terrible writer, but I have pretty good ideas and I'm a damn good storyteller. Well, the white paper that I'm working on right now, right now, my outline is about 13 pages of my comments and commentary. And I'll work with the guys uh, and I'm writing some more of it right now. It'll turn into a 25 page paper that I am also collecting input from other leadership. But I manage the narrative. Still, that's most leaders don't do that as much. Well, I, I've still even recently written, you know, design software and, and actually prototyped some in the last 12 months. So most leaders don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You graduated from the University of Arkansas in 1966, I believe. Yeah. So you're you're 78 and you're still involved in that level of detail. Yeah. It's really impressive. But I am interested in the writing piece, even though you, I know you get input from lots of other people and you have editors and so forth. All writing at your level should be that way anyway. But you still have to do writing because you have to get the right. concepts down on paper because no one else is going to be able to do no, it. Oh, that's right. So, but it's an interesting thing to think about because again, I think a lot of leaders don't do that. And I'm curious because I'm like you in the sense I write a lot, but I found that writing helps me think strategically. It organizes your thoughts and you, you're forced to think about what next. You're forced to think about how this stuff fits together because you go back and read it and say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Or, you know, I completely underestimated the, you know, this element of it. And I need to go back and rethink that. If it sounds good to you in the end, it's logical. And you can, you know, sleep on it, come back and read it. And it sounds like a rational plan. Then it probably is. Yeah. I think, too, if all you do is just whiteboard and you don't really get your thoughts down. Right. They're so loose that you can overlook really important errors in the logic. Right. Uh, right. And the other benefit of getting it written out clearly is that it gives other people the opportunity to critique it and say, well, you know, I, I see an issue here. 
let me tell you this an interesting story. The earlier white paper I did this year, we have been talking about branded calling and this thing that I just showed you, the screenshot. I wrote my first white paper on that topic in 2015. This year in January, I said, this organization is struggling, really gathering all the aspects that we're adding people all the time. And it's pretty clear it, the organization is not clear on the vision, even though we talk about it every week. It's like, how does all this fit together? How do we sell it? What exactly is it? How do we keep the displays so that they're consistent? And we got some of the feedback on our uh, leadership survey that our a vision for the company is not clear. I'm saying, what the hell? We talk about it every week, but we talk about it as a point. We talk about it as an addition to a product. We talk about it as a concept, but not how all that stuff fits together. So I said, I'm going to write a white paper, and then we are going to do all we can to be sure that it gets out in our employee base first, and then in some cases with our partners, so they understand what we're doing. And guess what happened? It was a total game changer, Matt. It was like, ah, I didn't know that's what it really was. I mean, you got, what the hell do you mean? We've been talking about it for five, six years. You didn't understand it. And that was sometimes pretty senior people. It's like they had kind of understood this part, but not how it fit with that part. And and I got fairly detailed on how all the underlying technology was going to work together because it's complicated. And I ended up working out some of those issues, not just myself, with some of my senior leaders, some of the things I hadn't thought about either, Matt. And so we worked through all that. So we got a 35-page white paper. And next thing I know, we're shooting videos on segments of it. You know, when you create the content in written form, it is easier to repurpose it yes. using other media more accurately. Absolutely. Everybody's, everybody's saying the same thing. One important part of leadership is uh, setting direction. Those white papers clearly help with that. I noticed, of course, that you also have written books, including Matters of Life and Data. Right. I have not read that book. I, I, I would like to. It's a little bit got a little bit more sex and a little, a little more exco, but you know, it, it, you know, I kind of tell it all, brother. And some people said I don't know if I told all that, but you know, <laughs> what inspired you to write a book? The first book, I mean, it's kind of silly, but and I wrote this what seven or eight years, ten years ago. I had people for ten years before then or more tell me. You need to write a book and, and explain what Axiom is and what it does. And, you know, my son or daughter worked for you, and I never knew what they did. I didn't understand the company, but I bought your stock, made a lot of money on stock, and I don't know what you did, you know. <laughs> my wife and I went on a trip to Italy, and I don't know if it was a conspiracy. There were only about, there were about eight couples, and we went to Academy dell'Arte, and uh, we spent a week uh, there. And I, I won't get into Cabin Arte, but we ended up being kind of a patron of this thing. Crazy. But these people said, and I got I got hot boxed at one time by a couple of them, you know, a banker and another guy. 
who's I respect the guy, said, Charles, you just need to write a book. You need to break down and write a book about what you did. So I started looking for somebody to help me, and I stumbled on Jim Morgan. He had written a number of books, including uh, the book with Bill Clinton's mother. He co-authored that, quote-unquote, with her. She died before the book got finished, so he actually ended up being co-author on that. But he wrote uh, Chasing Matisse, which a lot of people have heard of. It's a fairly well-known book. And he'd come back to Arkansas. One time, he was the editor of the Playboy Philosopher, which actually had some really good you know, articles in it. It was not trash at all. But anyhow, he helped me. And the first book, I think we had over 2,000 pages of transcription. He'd sit down with a tape. And we had a chapter we were going to work on and, you know, things that we want to cover. And he'd ask me a question. And then when I ran out of gas, he'd ask me another question. So writing is a big part of your leadership style, obviously. I want to talk, you mentioned that you enjoy scaling companies and building people, developing people. And I know you have scaled two companies, clearly. You're you're in the process of scaling one. Scaling is a tricky thing. Finding the right people, developing the right processes and systems. Because you can can scale too early, like happened a lot in the uh, dot-com boom of the 90s. You had these companies that really didn't have customer traction or a good business model, and all of a sudden they were scaling them. And that was a really good learning from the dot-com boom. I mean, the great companies came out of the dot-com boom, but a lot of wasted money. Mostly wasted money, yeah. But how how did you know, say, let's take First Orion, for example. How did you know when you had, when you were to the point where it was like, okay, it's time to scale? I've got a really simple way that we're managing this company, for example, is we are trying to manage to having a minimum amount of EBITDA. And early on, you don't have any revenue, so you got to invest. And you have got to see a point that you can see opportunity is gotten big enough that if you wisely manage a company, then you will be able to get it to positive. I'm not comfortable managing a company that has negative EBITDA. And I know that's not very fashionable these days, but I'm old school. When I first took over the business in 2013, I came in and I said, you know, we have had our worst quarter in history. We burned a lot of money. Uh, and by that time, I probably had six, $6 million invested in this thing. And I had most, I'd had 90% of the money had been invested. It was my money. And I said, I'm going to take over and be CEO. And by the way, the guy that was running it up until then stayed with the company and he's still a key part of the company. But I'm going to take over and we're going to have this thing profitable by November or December. Before the end of the year, we're going to be, we're going to have, we're going to have a positive EBITDA month. And we did. And I said, we're going to cut our computer expense dramatically. The very little bit of company who's been way too much on computers. I said, we're going to do everything to cut expenses. We got sloppy. We had, I said, what the hell are we doing with a little bit of company with 20 employees and three copiers? 
we're going to attack expense on every level. And I said, if we can drive 80000 a month in expense out of here, and with our revenue growth going, we, we will be positive, even now. And we did. I think we grew, you know, I don't know if we took 80000 out, but we took most of it out, and we grew our EBITDA, and sure enough, uh, you know, I think about November, we, we showed a $5,000 profit. And it just takes focus on that. But you also have to invest. And in, I will hire somebody, and I've, hired, I've done it many, many times. I don't have a job for you, but you can be a part of this company's future. So just kind of work. And I'm gonna, I'll make you an offer. If I have to put you on a consulting gig for a, a little while until we figure out what your job is, I'll do that. But if you see talent, it, you just got to get them on board. It's people. It's all about the people. You got to get the right people and put them in the right place and hire them when you can get them. And the other ones you hire and you train them and you really focus on training thus apprenticeship programs and internships and you know, all that kind of stuff. Charles, I know that you think culture is very important in a company. And there's lots of research that shows that that's certainly true. I would like to know how do you build a culture? When we first I got involved with Axiom, I never thought about a concept of culture didn't hit me. But early on, I'd been, been at IBM and I had seen IBM hire the best, very best people. So I knew that was a concept that I ought to think about. And I did. That was that was my only thing about building a culture was hire smart people when I first joined Axiom at 29 years old. And what happened for about the next 10 years is we grew that business a lot. And along the way, we thought about hiring a lot of good people. We were forced to put in educational systems, you know, and do other things to help us grow our people. But it was not all that intentional, man. It was just like, hey, we need some education. We got these people we can't hire. We'll make some classes and hire people and put them in classes. And we had all kind of issues with leadership and organizational structure. One place we had, and when we went back and looked at it, we had 13 levels of management in one area. Uh, in our data center operations. And, you know, obviously, when you start translating leadership direction to 13 levels, you know, if you play, you know, whispers and, you know, musical chairs and stuff like that, you know, it, you get groups like that. There is no real true communication across the ranks. So and it took me, obviously, 20 years to figure that out at Axiom. So in early 90s, we realized what a cluster we had on our hands in terms of leadership and culture. And the concept of culture started, and it was driven by the quality culture, which was something yeah. that was kind of raising its head around the late 80s, early yeah. 90s. You know, I had read some books along uh, to Tom Peters infected me early in my career. And so I had picked up the idea that people got to communicate across levels. Tom Peters management by walking around, very influential book. And so I knew there were some things that we, we weren't doing. We solved problems, but we didn't try to look at why we had problems. So the quality thing came along and I visited Millican Carpets, who was just doing some amazing stuff. 
and innovation and letting people make a difference and not just try and tell them, stay in a dark room and produce mushrooms. We put together a very organized culture and then did a year-long process of educating everybody. We got rid of levels. I think we had about 75 people. I had title of director that went all the way back to associate. And so we cut levels out and it was painful. I didn't want to do that here at First Orion. That was a big mistake. And building this business, I've been able to learn from mistakes. So I hired one of my senior people from Axiom early on, way before we needed it, and said, Libby, your name's Libby Whitehurst, said, Libby, we are not going to make the same mistakes over here we made at Axiom. I'm not going to go through the pain that we went through at Axiom. So we have been working on building a culture as we built the business. And we try to keep it simple. But the first day you walk in this building, you're you're here, people talk about our culture. And it's, get this, people first. People first. And there are only four cornerstones. The upper left-hand corner is people first. And the lower right-hand corner, guess what? It's innovation. And uh, another cornerstone is trust and transparency. Your leader has to be trusted. Your leader has to be transparent, like it is, brother. And that goes across all levels. But uh, the upper right-hand corner, I've forgotten the words, but it's get shit done. You know, (laughs) we have no vacation policy. You know, we do free lunches. We do beer 30 on Thursday at 3.30, and everybody shows up for that. We, We only ask people... You can do all that, and we don't have any sick leave policy, but if you don't get shit done, you don't have a job. And we do uh, performance reviews, and, you know, people know how they're going, uh, but if they're not performing or they take advantage of the environment, they don't have a job. The culture is starts day one when you arrive here, and it's pervasive in everything we do, and you know, you'll hear people refer to it almost every day. Everybody in the building is responsible for main, building and maintaining a culture. Everybody that works here knows about it and can talk about it. And just to look at our surveys, everybody feels it's an important part of uh, their life at First Orion. As a final question, what would you recommend to our students? Well, I I probably would have more advice than they're willing to listen to. But (laughs) what I will tell students is, while most people at their age are looking pretty short term, it's like, I want to finish this semester. uh, You know, I want to get a job. I want to make enough money. I can buy a new car or I can buy whatever they're interested in. The horizon that they think about is how can I, you know, once they got a job is how can I get a raise? But even before that, students tend to think about school as not what's the most interesting, challenging course I can take, but what can I make a good grade in or what would be interesting I make a good grade in. And they're not necessarily doing what I would call long-term strategic thinking. I know that's a mouthful for somebody who's 20 years old, but one advice I could get is 
remember, if you are lucky, you will be 40 years old one day. And what you're doing right now will determine who you are, where you will be when you're 40 years old. And if your thinking is, I want to get the best job I can get, and then when I get that, then I'll, you know, then I'll start looking for the next job that'll give me a, you know, a little bit more money, and and I'll chase dollars and I'll chase I'll chase money, but I'm not thinking about the long term. And what I tell kids time and time again, what do you want to do when you're 40? That's fun that you can get excited about, you know, you can do well. And if people think about it hard enough, they have an idea. And I say, if you can't get to 40, how about just getting to 30? And to get to the best job, to get to the thing you want to do, you're going to have to learn as much as you can learn. You're going to to be continuously learning. And you're going to have to look out not just for yourself, but for those you work for. The guys that get promoted are the guys that work best with others and are so are seen as somebody who influences the action and by the way get stuff done and is part of an active team and once you get into a managerial role it's the guys that hire people smarter than they are that are the most successful ever if you if you say my goal and I've got two or three people working here say all I try to do is look for people and I just insist they be smarter than I am. He, this guy's real smart, so it's kind of a joke. But look for real smart people and look for people that can work together and have a vision for what they want to be and do, and not just be chasing. Hey, I you know it's sour dollars or it's I want a job with a lot of time off or you know that's kind of a dead end view of the world. A lot of people who are successful lawyers, uh, let's just take a, that professional class. Over the years, I can tell you how many 45 to 55-year-old lawyers I've had come to me and say, I would like to change professions. You have any ideas? I don't like what I'm doing. Don't do something you don't like to do. And if you really love something and it is something that gives you great satisfaction. It, you'll be a happy person. Even if you're not the richest guy in town, you'll be a happy person and very successful. So true. What great advice, Charles. Thank you for taking time to visit with me today and really great story. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.